part of this passage that we're in, in John chapter 20. And I think about waiting painfully, you know, whether for you it was, oh, sorry, one more second. All right, whether, uh, I think we've all waited for uh, things in a painful way, um, whether it's for another kid or a home to kind of settle down in or a group of friends um, or getting that job promotion. Waiting is painful. And when I think about um, this passage as we walk through John, there's a sense of painful waiting for the disciples. They are expecting to rule alongside of Jesus. They're claiming spots, you know, in the hierarchy of God's kingdom as they're expecting Jesus to take over the Roman Empire. And he he surrenders himself. At the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Peter's trying to take off heads, and Jesus just lets himself be taken in. And he's crucified and executed. And we just think about how if the disciples' hopes for Jesus continue to rise in those three years of who he was, of who he would be, of the type of authority that he had, reality was a drastic drop as they see him crucified and buried and um, in a tomb. And I think about those three days of waiting, and it didn't feel like there would be an end. It felt like this was the end. Um, the time it took for them to ask questions and be angry and grieve probably seemed like forever. Finally, Mary goes to the tomb, and she finds it empty. Angels appear. She gives Jesus a hug. He says, stop it, you know? And she, she goes back to disciples, tells them that Jesus is resurrected, and I don't think they believe her. Peter and John run and race to the tomb. Peter beats John, but just kind of stops outside with, the, with this hesitance, with this um, not knowing if he wants to go in. And then John kind of beats past him, runs right into the tomb and verifies that it's been emptied. But as they're behind closed and locked doors in fear of the Jews, I think that they were open to all kinds of theories. Like maybe the body was moved. Maybe this is a bad joke. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus has risen from the dead. Maybe the, the lines that he spoke about while he was on earth is coming true. Maybe Mary wasn't just hallucinating. And I think over this next couple of days, they're just kind of playing with all of these theories. And that's kind of the scene we enter into in John chapter, verse 19, it says, On the evening of the first day that of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Because I think it's scary when people pop out of nowhere. So wish Nina would say that to me more often um, after she scares me. Uh, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Verse 23 is a little hard to understand, so I'll briefly Um, say that he's not saying that we have power to forgive or not forgive people as individuals or even as a church. It's really um, 
encaptured in this idea that Jesus is sending us to proclaim the gospel. He's giving us the Holy Spirit to have power to announce his kingdom, announce repentance, announce forgiveness. And as we do that, people will either be forgiven as they hear the gospel because they've responded to Jesus, or they will not be forgiven. And so this, if you look at the Greek, this forgiven and not forgiven is really resides on the hearers and people who are responding versus us who are proclaiming. But we're going to sit with the rest of this text. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nails on his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I think about the other disciples, the other 10 disciples, you know, starting a support group, like Alcoholics Anonymous, but maybe it's like Abandonment Anonymous, right? They're together, they're angry together, they're grieving together. And I think sometimes when we are feeling um, sad and, and maybe traumatized, we band together with people who understand what we're going through. But other times we want to be alone, or other times we have the tendency to retreat. And I think that's where Thomas is. As all of these other disciples are getting together, I've, he's kind of off on the corner, you know, maybe licking his own wounds, pushing other people away. So he finally shows up, and the disciples are ecstatic to see him, ecstatic to announce that they've seen Jesus, that he's alive, and Thomas won't have it. He's completely disillusioned by Jesus. And the doubts have, have taken root in his heart so that even when his closest friends tell him that there's hope, that Jesus is alive, he denies them. And, you know, John Marriott, he, he spoke the other day. He has a PhD in deconversion. So he's studying people who were Christian but left. And I had a great conversation with him just asking him, in, how does this happen to someone who has grown up as a Christian or who has followed Jesus. And he said that most of the time people deconvert because of disillusionment, because of a specific incident that they could point back to in their personal experience where they felt like God did not do what they ex expected him to do, that God left them or he didn't change a situation or he wouldn't answer a prayer. And that kind of, from that point, they, it would spiral into philosophical or theological arguments for why God might not be good or loving or exist. And I think that's where Thomas is at. He felt abandoned by Jesus. All the disciples did. And he wasn't willing to let his heart hope again. But I think what's beautiful is that Jesus meets us there too. In verse 26, a week later, which I want to point out is kind of a long time. I wonder why Jesus lets, lets Thomas doubt for a whole week. And that's not Thomas's disposition, by the way. He's the one who says, let's go to Jerusalem to die with Jesus. And then here, he's, he, even probably for this whole week, he won't give in to the disciples' um, witness. A week later, his disciples were at home again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Again, the whole like, 
don't be scared thing. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus gives Thomas this great gift of being able to have undoubtable evidence that he has raised from the dead. He gets to touch Jesus. And at this point, if, if Thomas is going to doubt Jesus' resurrection, he has to doubt everything in his life, everything he's seen, everything he's touched. I mean, this is the most evidence that anyone could possibly have. And I think sometimes we long for that. Um, last week was kind of talking about apologetics for the re- resurrection, which gave us reasonable proof uh, historically that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, I feel like there's still a distance between, you know, everything John Marriott talked about and being able to place my hands in Jesus' hands, wrists. Place my hand into his, into his side. Aren't there times in our lives where we're just like, God, I'm tired of praying to a wall. Can you, can you just show up and speak to me? Or I'm tired of worshiping and not being able to see you face to face. I'm tired of, of talking to you and not getting an audible answer. Please burn up that Christmas tree and speak to me. Please write on that wall. Please show up right in front of me so I can touch you. And in verse, I'm tired of waiting, right? In different seasons of my life, please just answer my prayer. Get me out of the situation. Let me get to the resurrection without the three days in between, without the two weeks of asking questions. And then in verse 29, though, it kind of flies in the face of all of those statements, I think. Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas, right? Because, Thomas, you've seen me, you have believed. So so when I'm reading the text, you know, if there's a camera or or a scene, I, I just kind of see Jesus looking at Thomas, Telling him, oh, you believe me now because you've seen me, because you've touched me. But then I remember this one time when I was reading the text, I I saw Jesus kind of look straight at me, away from the context, away from the disciples, away from 2,000 years ago where he appeared. And he looks at me and he said, blessed are those, Wilson, all of you guys, Winnie and Dexter and blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. It's one of those moments where Jesus speaks into the future, right? He's speaking outside of his specific context, outside of these disciples who have seen him. And he's speaking to us, those who have not seen him, those who didn't get to put our hands into the holes of his wrists. And he says, we're the ones that are blessed. Us. And I don't feel blessed because I'd rather, I'd rather be Thomas most days of the week. So how is it that Jesus can call us blessed? I read a book, and there's this graph in it. Actually, I didn't read the book, but there's this graph in it. 
So like, do you still cite things that you're going to butcher? Because I feel like the author would be mad at me if I cited him. His name's, last name Miller, some, type, some book on prayer. Anyways, um, so there's this graph on hope, right? So this, this green line is hope, and this blue line is reality. And I think Thomas is, there's this hope that Jesus is the Messiah, that he might be God, that he's going to deliver them. And then there's the reality of Jesus being dead in the tomb. And the wilderness is kind of that in-between state of trying to hold the two together, trying to hold hope in one hand and reality in the other. And I think when we look at all of our biblical heroes, they've done that. Joseph holding on to his dreams while being a slave and in prison. David thinking about Nathan anointing him while running from Saul. Moses um, and all of God's promises to him, um, setting his people free while Pharaoh is making them build bricks without straw. And the wilderness is a lot of our lives, this in-between state of God's promises, of our hope, of the things that we, we desire and the reality of it just not looking even close to that. We reside there often. And I'm thankful that most of the Bible is dedicated to the wilderness. A lot of, pretty much every narrative has this wilderness season of hanging on to hope and reality at the same time. So much of the Psalms is dedicated, right, to, to the reality of being chased around, of enemies approaching on every side, of, of starvation, and then God is still good, and he is still my fortress, and he is still my deliverer. So much of the prophets is lamentations, weeping, grieving over the destruction of the temple, over Israelites being scattered around the known world, and how many refugees with their country destroyed are able to return home. And you have prophet after prophet at the ground level of the situation. They don't let go of reality. They know how devastating the, the plight was. And yet, on the other hand, they reach and they say, God is still good. He's still the restorer. He will call his people home. And Jesus is talking about the wilderness here, where we don't see yet. We don't see the hope that we believe, and yet, and yet we're willing to grab a hold of it and reality at the same time. And blessed, he says, are those in the wilderness. Blessed are those who do not see and still believe. What are the things that happen in the wilderness? Why can we say that it's a blessed season in our life? I think in the wilderness, that's when we are, our faith and our trust in God is tested. Oh, sorry. Slide before this. Oh, here we go. Um, in the wilderness, our trust, it tests our trust in God. You know, I, I think about us as a church, as a community, in my, own, in my own self. 
And I think that we need to, and I need to, I need to approach our faith with humility. I think as young Christians, we can sing and pray and believe that our faith is strong, and yet it's actually most of it may be untested. And we actually don't know how strong our faith is. But as a Christian, in our Christian context, we can easily disconnect what we know about Scripture, our worship songs, and believe that because we memorized a verse and because we sang it, that we are it. But the wilderness tests who we actually are and how much we actually trust God. It gives us the gift of reality. It gives us the gift of knowing ourselves. And I think about my life and how there are aspects of my faith that have gone untested. Um, by God's grace, most of the ministries I've been a part of has grown. Um, whether it's at GCCI, my first church, Ambassador, um, Epic, or Renew. And I, I just kind of, I'm sober when I think about Renew just falling apart. And not because of any grotesque sin, but it just, you know, we just disband. We can't uh, pay the bills or there's division. And I've not been tested in that way. I've not been tested in a ministry that I really love just dying on me and me having to worship and trust God through that. I haven't had a person that I love, maybe Nina or my best friend, fight cancer and pass. I haven't lost, you know, my back and been unable to walk again. These are all real tests that people have gone through, and I have not gone through them. And in some ways, I haven't tested my faith in those ways. And then there's, there's tests that I have been through. I remember um, going through ACL surgery, and the morphine wore off, which morphine is amazing. It's like the best drug you could ever have. I woke up, doped up on morphine, and I was like, I seriously thought I could play basketball that afternoon. And I was walking out of the hospital, like waving at the nurses, I'm healed, you know, I'm good. And they're like, oh my gosh, he just got out of surgery. And they threw, they like got a wheelchair and like ran towards me. They're like, sit down. I'm like, I'm good. You know, everything's okay. I'm going to play basketball this afternoon. And then on the way home, the morphine wore off. I vomited in the car. And I remember being up at 3 a.m. And I was in just excruciating pain. I just sat there. And I didn't want to cry, like, loud enough for my parents to wake up because I was, like, 24. So I just qu cried quietly, you know. And... Um, and uh, I remember in that moment, um, instead of being angry with God, instead of cursing at him, I just thought about Job. And I said, I'm just going to sing Blessed Be Your Name between the, the tears. And my faith was tested. And the reality of me was able to worship God in pain. And other times, my t faith is tested. And I see its reality, and it gives way but I get the gift of who I really am and how much I really trust God, not just the worship songs, not just the seminary degree, not just the verses I memorized. And I think, I just want to encourage us as a community to approach 
our trust with, with God, our faith with humility. Um, and then to look at those who have ran the race. You know, most of my mentors are over 60 because they've been tested and they're faithful. And there's just something to be said about someone who can walk with God faithfully for 60, 70, 80 years. The gift of the wilderness is that our trust in God is tested and we know where we, where we are. The second gift is that in the wilderness is where our character transforms. It's where we grow, right? Rejoice in the testing of your faith because it per- produces perseverance. That not only in the wilderness do we see where we are, but we get to progress from there. We get to have our faith stretched, our capacity stretched, our, our, our faith in God and our love for God stretched, and we grow there. You know, the beautiful part of the wilderness is that all of our idols start to die. J- Joseph had no idols in prison, no accolades that he could point to himself, no, no place to bolster and put himself on a pedestal. David had, had no place for idols when he's running from Saul. In the wilderness, in the desert, you don't want much. You don't have much. And, and, and the things you thought you wanted, like I really wanted an iPad Pro when it came out. I wanted it so bad. I was trying to talk Katie into letting us buy it as a church for Jesus, okay? I wanted it so bad. She talked me down, right? Um, that's why you get crappy PowerPoint. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, uh, and, um, but if I was dying in the desert, if I was lost in the wilderness, I wouldn't want an iPad Pro. I would just want water and food. And in the wilderness, if we are doing it the right way, if we're not trying to escape, because that's the temptation, if we're not trying to run away, if we're not trying to numb ourselves, we get to find God there in a new way. We get to discover him. And we get to long for him in ways that we've, in ways that are undistracted. Because the things we had our pride and our value in, they're not there in the wilderness. And even if they were, we wouldn't want it. We get to find God. You know, I wonder if Joseph would have taken pride on his intellect and leadership if he wasn't in prison, seeing God's sovereignty place him next to Pharaoh. I wonder if David would have relied on his own strength, because as a kid, he took down a giant. If it wasn't for running away from Saul and feeling weak and lost and alone and knowing that, that he just wanted water and, and all these poems of longing for God came out of it. We are transformed in the wilderness, and we're blessed in that transformation. You know, if, if being Christian means being happy, God would not put us in the wilderness. He would just give us what we wanted. So if you're going to buy into our whole generation's lie of just be happy and just pursue happiness, um, Christianity it doesn't have that goal in mind. It has character. It has who you are and your growth in mind. That's what God's thinking. It, it pleases him to give us gifts. But man, think about, 
how his gifts would crush us if our, if our character hadn't grown, how his gifts would crush Joseph and, and Moses and David if it wasn't for the wilderness. Lastly, it gives us the space for unique worship. You know, um, I think some of the best worship that I've seen is, is just Job, after everything is stripped away, he said, you give and take away, blessed be your name. In, in worship in the wilderness, we get to worship God in this pure way because it's not about his stuff anymore. It's not about what he can give us. It's not about what we have. It's just about God. There's an awesome place in worship for that, in that space. And also it's unique because we worship while suffering. And we worship while not seeing. And that's a specific worship that we only get to give for a, for a limited amount of time. Right? When we get to heaven... We're not going to be able to worship grappling and wrestling and in pain anymore. That, that kind of faith and trust isn't going to come to us in heaven. We get to worship in an awesome way, before the throne, on our knees, seeing the full glory of God. And I'm excited to worship like that. But the worship where we are praying and we're not sure if he answers, but we're going to trust him. The worship where we're singing the songs and we don't, and we're not in front of his throne. The worship where we're longing and waiting for our redemption, that worship has, is finite and beautiful and unique to this space. Maybe unique to us as humans. I don't know if the angels ever got to worship like that. They've always seen God face to face. They've never had to trust and believe that whether he exists or is good or is beautiful. But we get to worship in that way. And I, I think, it is so hard to explain, but I feel like when we get to heaven, we'll look back at the wilderness worship and it will be like the most precious worship. It will be such a sweet time. It will be something we'll never trade out and we'll never have back. That worship in the wilderness, in longing for God is, is beautiful. It's an honor. It's special. It's temporary. It's something that we get to cling on to. And so Jesus calls us blessed, not Thomas who touches his hand and touches his side and sees him. He looks at us and he says, you are blessed because of the wilderness. And there's places in God's promise that we get to grab hold of right now, but there's other parts that we will have to wait till death to see. There's, place, there's things that we hope for that we won't be able to touch and feel till we're in heaven. But man, that worship, that trust in God, and it being actualized one day, it's amazing. It's blessed. So I want us just to kind of come back to the people we shared that first question with. And I would love for us just to take some time to ask about previous wildernesses in our life and how 
Maybe we could reflect on a time where we were able to trust God or grow or worship while being in the season of wilderness. And also, maybe there's a, a wilderness now in some part of our life that we can share and just pray for. And so I know it's weird. I know most churches don't interact, you know, in the middle of sermons, but we want to. And uh, it can be a little awkward, but I feel like these are the most powerful parts of our time together, like talking to God and, and um, sharing with each other. So I'll pray for us, and I'd love for you guys to just kind of go into these questions. Vicky can play some, or we can play some music from the back, or Vicky can play the keyboard. After you pray for each other, would you just go and take communion together, and then we'll spend some time worshiping God as we close. Father, we love you. Um, we just hand this time to you, God. We, we pray that, um, that in our wilderness, um, we wouldn't just try to run or numb ourselves, but we would find you there. We would find you in a new way. We would find you asking us to trust you and hope in you and worship you in the wilderness. I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves blessed there too. Thank you so much for the space where we could just kind of talk and pray with each other. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would be present and that the words uh, from the scripture would, would rest deeply in our lives as we reflect and, and lift each other up. Would you be present? Would you minister through us? We would speak your words to each other. In Jesus' name.